you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to go to 1 Timothy with me this morning, the book of 1 Timothy, and uh, we're going to be reading verses 3 to 7. I'm going to try to finish the sermon I started last week, so maybe that, I should have asked Daniel to pray for that, Um, and I'm going to lower this down just a little bit, there we go, so I can see everybody. 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 3 to 7, then we'll kind of get into it together as a, as a family. This is Paul, he's writing a letter. It's only going to be about five years from this writing that he's going to lay down his life for his Savior. And at the risk of being somewhat graphic, he will literally give his head for Christ. Just about five years from the writing of this book. And yet, with that always before him, he writes to Timothy, sending him to the church of Ephesus because his heart is for Christ, his heart is for the gospel, his heart is for the church. And so in verse 3, he starts by kind of after his greeting, giving Timothy, here's why I want you to be at Ephesus. Here's what I want you to do. And he says, as I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. We have come and gathered as a church, and I'm going to say that and remind you of that constantly. You didn't come to church. We gathered as the church. This building is not the church. We are the church. And I want us to get rid of that ideology. The church facilities are the means. They're not the ends. And I've had the great privilege of being able to go to different parts of the world. And I remember in the the city of Jizinsk in Russia, which is the fifth most polluted city in the world, gathering with some saints of the Lord Jesus Christ in a beaten down house, in a room about half this size where 80 people gathered in what was a KJB um, jailhouse where they took people and Sunday school was downstairs in the basement and still had the bars in the windows and the heavy steel doors and they had the joy of the Lord like few I've ever encountered. I've gathered with saints in Jamaica, up in the hills of Jamaica with no windows and when it poured rain, buckets were everywhere and geckos were on the wall and I don't do well with things that crawl. All right, so I was trying to listen to the sermon. At one point, I was trying to preach, and things were going across the back wall. And the whole time my mouth was moving, I'm praying, Lord, please don't let any of those things come this direction. All right, and the joy of the Lord was their strength. I've gotten to sit with people that are representatives of Voice of the Martyrs who've come back from China, and they've gathered in forests around campfires, low burning fires, with literally hundreds of Christians with no facilities at all, rejoicing with the joy of the Lord as their strength. And they are the church. So we didn't come to church. 
We are the church, and we want to make sure we understand that. So again, for our visitors, we're looking at 1 Timothy, and then we're going to look at 2 Timothy, and then we're going to look at Titus in a series I've entitled, We the Church. And the idea that I want us to wrestle with at Calvary Baptist is how God's people live life. How God's people live life. Now, we started this last week, but this weekend and yesterday was the day or the weekend of love. It was Valentine's Day yesterday. This is our Valentine's weekend. Now, I don't know what you did. I'm sure some of you went all out. You just pulled out all the stops, took your sweetheart or your honey or your date or whatever, hopefully all of the above, I guess, um, and took them out. Maybe you went low-key. I know some people went for the free skate at the loop, right? Um, but last week, on this weekend that the world celebrates love, we looked at the idea of guarding the gospel. We looked at the idea that we are called to confront and to expose and explain, and we're called to do that with each other. And we wrapped all of this up that we're supposed to, we're called to charged and commanded to do this with each other in love as the world watches. As St. John's watches how we function, not just how we talk. You know, there's a saying that my, my dad passed on to me, which was the older, my, the older I get, the smarter my dad gets. Let me just say that again. The older I get, the smarter my dad gets. Okay, and for all of you young people, you'll get it. I promise you, you're going to get it. All right? When I turned about 17, 18, I woke up one day and figured out I knew everything. I really did. I knew everything. I knew how to tell everything. And then I turned 25 and realized I knew nothing. And then I turned 35 and knew I even learned less. And now that I'm headed for 45, I'm beginning to realize I still need to learn. But the older I get, the smarter my dad gets. And so the idea here is that the world is watching us because my father used to say, Steve, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Actions are expensive. And so the world is not impressed by what we say. They're really not. The world wants to watch and see if what we say is how we live. If what we say we believe about God, if what we say about God, if what we say about the Bible, if what we say about all of these things that are found in church, do we actually live that out? Is that the, the, the barometer, the filter, the, the measuring stick by which we make all of our decisions? If you're single, your belief in God should influence how you date. If you're married, husbands and wives, what we believe about God should affect our marriages. If you're saved as a family, it should affect the way you treat each other as brothers and sisters, how children treat and respect their parents, how we love and respect each other within the church. So we're called of God, charged, commanded, to confront, to expose, to explain, to guard the gospel. And we're supposed to do this with each other as the world watches. And we're called and charged and commanded to be real while we do this, to be honest not just truth-seeking, but truth-confident. See, I find growing up in church, I knew a lot of facts. In fact, often I think at points in my life, I could have put this book right on the shelf next to the Encyclopedia Britannica as another volume of it. I knew everything that you wanted to know about this book. I knew I could recite all 66 books. I knew how many books were in each testament. I knew all kinds of memory verses. I knew who all the kings were of both kingdoms. 
in order. Forget the presidents or the prime ministers. I knew who the kings of Israel were. All right? I could name you and list you anything you wanted to know. And what I had was a whole bunch of knowledge. But I had no confidence in the truth. Because when I faced things, my default setting was what I wanted to do. Or what made me feel comfortable. Or what made me feel good. And guess what? At 43, I'm still struggling with it. But God's word not only is truth, it becomes more of my confidence. We don't add to God's word. We don't take away from it. We are humble about it. We admit we need Jesus Christ and his spirit to guide us and teach us and explain to us his word. But we never leave the gospel. We never change it or look to somehow go deeper into it as if we're going to find something new. Nope, not us. In fact, as we learned last week, we learned that arguing over stuff that we will never know or understand is actually a sign that we've lost the wonder and glory and truth of the gospel. Whenever you, or whenever I, or whenever us, spend more time arguing and fussing and bickering over positions, obscure positions, or positions in the church, or power, or our particular point of view, we actually prove that we have lost the gospel entirely. There's a song that I love to sing at Easter. One of the lines in the song says, we're just playing games at the foot of the cross. Isn't it tragic that we got to talk like this in church? That Paul would have to write a letter to Timothy to tell him to go to a church, a wonderful church, a vibrant church, and say, Timothy, charge them, command them, call them to confront each other, to expose false gospels, to explain the truth to each other. Now, Daniel prayed it. How do we go about doing, or how do we go about living a holy life? What does a transformed life look like? What does a life of sacrifice, a life of trusting Jesus Christ with our lives and the lives of those around us, our loved ones and our enemies, what does that look like? How do we change and help others change? How do we, the people of God, live life? Hmm. Are you ready for this? It's from verse 5, what we just read. The aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love. And I would say again on Valentine's weekend that love is likely one of the most misused, overused, misunderstood, misapplied, and misdefined words, not only in the church, but in culture. I know for Brandon, who's dating now and he's older, and our, and our middle boy, uh, one of the things I talk to them often about as they grew up and went through their teenage years is, Be very, very slow with this word love because you don't know what it means. I've told Brandon many, many times, Brandon, you've only been loved by two people in your life and you're looking at one of them and the other one gave birth to you. All right? And told him to be very, very slow with this word love. And I've been very proud of him as he has been. I really have been proud of him. But I want us to realize that on this weekend of love, I think the world gets it wrong, it fakes it, it says it, we throw out the word love. It's like my two pet peeves, if I can rant for a second. I can't stand the way culture uses the word love, and I can't stand the way culture uses the word amazing. Because we say that God's amazing, 
And then we go down to Dairy Queen and say, that Sunday was amazing. Really? It's that easy? It's that simple? God and, and, a, and a banana split? You, you know, I love God and I love pizza. It, you know, it's one of these things that I, 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 I kind of don't like the English language because we have so few words or we use some of the same words to describe so many things. And in Greek, it's so wonderful because there's three words for love. There's eros and phileo and agape, and they each mean something different. And the word love, when he says the aim of our charge is love, it's not eros, where we get the English word erotic. It's not sensual. It's not pleasure-seeking. It's not even phileo, where we get the, the Greek word there means brotherly love or how siblings would love each other. It's much deeper than that. It's agape love. It's an unconditional love. It's a love of choice. It's absent of emotion. There was more chick flicks played over the last 48 hours. It is definitely one. I'm so glad we only have one day that's Valentine's Day because I can't handle all the chick flicks on the television, okay? But the idea that love is all emotional and the TV world has it so perfect because they play the music just right and the sun sets, sets and, and the guy, that one little tear rolls down her cheek and he just, and you can see the ending of every movie. It is so predictable, that is not what God means when he says the aim of our charge is love. That's not what Paul means when he says the aim of our charge is love. And last week we learned there was a loving charge to stay in confront, and that's in verse 3 and 4. Paul tells Timothy, I want you to stay in Ephesus, and I want you to confront certain persons. Remember last week I asked you, how often do you associate the word confrontation with love? How often do you associate, have positive word association with confrontation and love? Now, it's, I think it's easy for parents because we make a living out of confronting our children, right? And we talked about that last week, and it's always loving. For those of you, many of you have small little children, and if you see them walking towards a hot wood stove, you do not have a conversation with your child. You don't go, well, I wonder if he'll go over there or not. And you don't have this kind of, I wonder if I should tell him, because if I tell him he's going to have a bad day, if I tell him not to go towards that stove, Debbie's been babysitting some twins, and we only have an electric fireplace. So it's not like the little one is going to get burned or hot. But Debbie was telling him, because there's things over there that she didn't want this little fellow Nathan to get his hands on, and so he looks at the little one and says, no. And the little one looked at Debbie and then did this, right? And then just lost it. Now, was Debbie a big meanie pants because she said no to a one-year-old? She confronted a one-year-old not to go somewhere that could potentially hurt them deeply and badly. No, it was an act of love. It was an act of love. And so Paul says, as an act of love, I want you to stay and confront people that are leaving the gospel. They're getting focused on things that are going to hurt them, not help them. They're going to argue about stuff and think it's all, all in the name of Christ and the name of the gospel. And really, it's just empty religion. And before you know it, you have nothing. In fact, he would say to the Thessalonians, they have a form of godliness and deny the power thereof. And that's what happens then we looked at the, lo the loving charge to expose. The loving charge to expose in verse 4. And we, where Paul told Timothy, expose them. These vain discussions, these myths, these gene genealogies. But remember, I put the whole sermon into a sentence, which was this. Right doctrine always leads to right living, 
which always results in right relationship. Right doctrine. This is not a sermon, nor do I want Calvary Baptists to think that we are not to be about the right doctrine or the right truth or that we should have a strong orthodoxy. All right? And that's just a $10 theological expression, meaning the way we believe, our system of belief. But if I can go onward, our orthodoxy should always lead to right orthopraxy, which means right living. Right doctrine always leads to right living. And here's how you know if your doctrine and your living agree. You'll have right relationships. You will. There won't be cliques in the church. There won't be this group that says, well, I love my church as long as I don't have to serve with so-and-so. Or I love my church and I love my small group, but I never want to change my small group and I never want anybody else to come into my small group or any of those types of things. I love, and, and you know how, how we doctor this up in church? Here's what we do. Here's how we make ourselves feel good about these types of things. We'll talk about someone, we'll gossip about someone, we'll tear them down, we'll go, bless their heart. And then we think that gets us off the hook. Bless his heart, he's some loud. Bless her heart, she's really needy. That's how we we disguise our sin. But right doctrine leads to right living and results in right relationships. And so there was a charge to stay and confront. There was a charge to expose. And then we ended off last week with this loving charge in verse 5 to defend. In verse 5 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, the aim of our charge is love. And Paul worries about the fact that maybe even in first century Ephesus, which was like a collision of, of Las Vegas and New York, all right, it had a little bit of everything. It was a cross-section of people. And so maybe he's worried that these people are wrapped up in emotional love and they don't understand it. So he says, our aim of our charge is love that issues from, and then he's going to define it. And he gives us three things, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, One man writes this, it is essential that believers, and he quotes Deuteronomy and in Matthew, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Then he quotes Leviticus, and your neighbor as yourself. Indeed, love is the mark of the Christian. Let me say that again. Do we believe as a church that the mark of a Christian is our love for God and for each other. It doesn't, I'm not worried about anything else. I'm not worried about the rest of your theological platform. I'm worried about this. Do we really believe that the mark of a real Christian is how we love God and how we love each other? Love indeed is the mark of the Christian. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now let me ask you this question. Because I actually think one of the reasons we struggle in our churches today is because of your answer to this question. Do you believe you are loved by God? really loved by God. I posted an article on our Facebook page, and I'm going to keep this going out there, so I'm hoping to draw you all into the sin that is Facebook, all right? But I put this on the church's private Facebook page, and I've seen this in so many things, especially in marriages. I've seen this in kids and their families. I've heard this said to me many times. I had a husband look at me one day 
years ago and he said, Steve, I believe my wife loves me. I'm just not sure if she likes me. Do you believe that God loves you? Which by de facto means he has to like you. And he's not forced to like you or love you. Because it's agape love. It's a love of choice. He chooses to love you. He loves you because of Jesus Christ. He loves you and he sees you through redemption. Love does not mean, by the way, live and let live. Love does not mean we don't confront. Love does not mean the absence of even rules or guides. And for all of you as parents, and I will tell you this because I'm still learning this, love without rules leads to chaos. Listen to me, moms and dads. Love without rules leads to chaos. If all you're going to do is love... And that's why I'm not saying emotional, worldly love. I'm not talking about the church where Danny again prayed of it, but we're called to be holy. So we're not talking about live and let live, anything goes, whatever feels right to you, and whatever feels right to them. That's not love in the church. That's not godly love. But let me also say, church, rules without love leads to rebellion. So love without rules leads to chaos. And you will see both extremes in most parenting. Parents that just, oh, I'm just going to love my kids and love my kids and love my kids. And they have no rules, no boundaries, no guidelines. They're afraid to upset their children. And all they do is have chaotic lives. But then there are parents that think, you know what? I'm going to legislate the way my children turn out. And what that ends up in is rebellion. Because children cannot thrive in the home of dictatorship. And let me also say that's true of church. We cannot be a church where it's all about love and no expectations. Because it'll be complete chaos. But where legalism creeps into the church and where we're going to have all kinds of rules and we're going to legislate everything and we're going to argue over all the fine points of everything, all you're going to have is chaos. And that's why I posted and I tweeted that little quote, do we want our kids to stay in the church today? Then let's make much or dazzle them with Jesus. Let's not burden them with a bunch of do's and don'ts. And that has to stop, start with us. And you'll notice what he says here. He says, love, John added, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. Now, wrap your heads around that. The one who doesn't love doesn't know God. And it's a biblical love. I'm talking about agape love. For God is love. Agape love is the love of choice, of will. It involves self-denial and self-sacrifice to the benefit of others. Is there anything better than that in the gospel? Jesus chooses to love us. He self-sacrifices. He self-denies for our benefit. See, grace, we love to use this word grace, and we love to say that grace is unmerited favor, right? It's when God gives us something we don't deserve. Mercy is when God withholds something that we do deserve. But I find that when we always just do it like that, it cheapens the gospel. Because grace is not only when God gives us something we don't deserve, but we need to understand it's when God gives us something we don't deserve and he doesn't owe us anything. It's from an unobligated giver. 
You see, I'm in a relationship with Debbie, and this is my thing with Valentine's Day. So often, everything about Valentine's Day is I will do something nice for my girlfriend or for my fiance or for my spouse, and the truth is I do it nice in hopes that something nice will come back my way. And it might not even be something overt. It might just be, you know, tell me I'm a good guy. Tell me I got it right. Tell, tell me, you know, tell me you're impressed with me, that you're proud of me, right? But the whole idea is I didn't just do it to do it regardless of your response. See, agape love is God does something for us irregardless of our response. He just loves us. Now, here's the trick. When you get that, you will respond. When you really get it, you will respond. And so it's funny to me how the world denies God and yet blames Him for everything. Have you ever wondered that? The world right now denies God, denies His presence. He's the butt of all jokes and punchlines. It amazes me with the world, especially. I watch CNN on purpose, usually to raise my blood pressure. Um, but I, I don't watch Fox News because usually they're going to agree with me. And I find that poor old Fox News people, they just say the right things at the top of their lungs and nobody listens. All right? I just wish they'd chill a little bit. But at least with CNN, I get a good picture on how the liberal mind works. And it amazes me how much they deny the existence of God. They deny God. But then everybody wants to blame God for everything. Hurricanes and car accidents and famine and economic collapse. We blame him for everything, but he doesn't exist. And this is so often what we do. And so 1 Timothy 1.5 jumps out as a correction to the world and to the church. God wants the world to know through us, the church, that he operates in a different way. And his goal for us is love. And God's definition of love is not sentimental. It's a love that is trustworthy and active. It comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so we need our theology to not only be true, but spirit-filled and fruitful. And here's my problem. Calvary Baptist, we have often loved what we've learned about God more than God himself. And so look at these three things quickly. Love from a pure heart. What does that mean? It is found amazingly in the Old Testament everywhere. If you read Psalms, you're going to find this idea of a pure heart everywhere. I read it last week, Psalm 24.3. When the psalmist says, David says, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? And here's his answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who will not lift his soul to another. In Psalm 51, after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then he manipulated events to have Uzziah, her husband, murdered, and he hides it and he denies it. And in Psalm 32, you'll hear about him talk about the fact that he kept silent and his bones melted within him and he was miserable and depressed and discouraged. And then finally, God sends the prophet Nathan to him and he gives him this little story about this one little farmer who's got one little sheep and this great rich guy who's got all kinds of sheep. And he's walking by and he takes the one sheep from the little, little uh, farmer. And David, right, I love this. David just gets ticked off. He's like, bring me this little imp. Bring me this little fella, and I will show him. Take a little sheep from a little farmer, I'll get even with him. And he, I think David's chest was out and his shoulders were back, and I think he was as proud as one could be. And then Nathan looks at him with his pointy little finger, and he says, you're the guy. You're the dude. You have everything, and you had to steal another man's wife, and then you had him killed. And in Psalm 51... 
you get David's broken prayer of confession and repentance. And in Psalm 51.10, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Asaph writes in Psalm 73.1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now what does it mean? When, when, when David is called a man after God's own heart, what do you think the Bible means? I remember when I was a teenager and a young adult, I wrestled with this more than anything. How could an adulterer and a murderer who was constantly running ahead of God be possibly called a man after God's own heart? And you know Why? It's because David would own what God said about things. When God said, David, I love you, David owned it. When God said, David, you're a sinner, he owned it. That's what made him someone after God's own heart. He trusted in God. He believed in God. And he didn't mind. He embraced what he was. And he trusted in his Savior. And he trusted in his Redeemer. And Jesus talked of this in Matthew. It's why I opened up this morning with reading Matthew chapter 5. Now, here's the opposite of the Beatitudes. Remember, in Matthew 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But my friend Ray Ortland Jr. wrote the opposite of the Beatitudes when he said this, Congratulations to the entitled, for they grab what they want. Congratulations to the carefree, for they shall be comfortable. Congratulations to the pushy, for they shall win. Congratulations to the greedy, for they shall climb the food chain. Congratulations to the vengeful, for they shall be feared. Congratulations to those who don't get caught, for they'll look good. Congratulations to the argumentative, for they shall get in the last word. Congratulations to the popular, for the world lies at their feet. Now, Ortland goes on to say, the gospel is more than handy tips for improving our lives this week. It is a new outlook on everything, illuminated by God's promise of a glorious future, renewing the entire creation. But God is not the only one making promises. The world has its own version of events. The world has its own version of how life ends and, who, and its own promises of reward. And everybody in this room is going to choose either the Beatitudes of Christ or the Beatitudes of the world. Every one of us is going to make that decision. But here's my question in regards to love that's from a pure heart. Have you ever met one person who believed this world's unbeatitudes and came to the end of life a satisfied, radiant, wise person? Even one. I have a book in my office, if you ever want to borrow it. It's called The Last Words of Saints and Sinners. I love that book because it amazes me how many people will spend their life denying God and living for themselves only to come to the end of life and be completely unhappy, alone, and petrified at what's next. Where are you and I with that? And so a pure heart, love comes from a heart cleansed of sin, the heart being the hidden person. This stands in contrast to these evil ones, these certain persons, right? In 1 Timothy 4, they are liars. In 1 Timothy 5, they persist in sin. In 1 Timothy 6, they have a depraved mind. In 1 Timothy 6, 5, they don't even know what the truth is. They don't know the difference between false and truth. So a pure heart is love 
1 Corinthians 13 style. Now again, I lied, so I got to ask for forgiveness because I have another rant, which is 1 Corinthians 13. Because everybody sings it at weddings. Everybody quotes it. It's beautiful poems. It was never written for a wedding. It was never written to married couples or dating couples. 1 Corinthians 13 is written to a church on how a church should function. And notice that Paul says you can have all of your theology right. You can sacrifice yourself. You can do all these things. But he says, no, listen, if you haven't got love, you've got nothing. If you haven't got love, you're just a windbag, to put it in Newfoundlandese. All right, when he says a loud symbol, a big bong, I could just feel my grandfather going, you're nothing but a windbag, all right? No, love is patient and kind. Love doesn't assume the worst. Love doesn't keep record of things. You see, this is how you know if you've forgiven someone. I love this when people say, I've forgiven him until you mess up again. And then it's, yeah, I remember when two years ago you did this to me. Well, then you've never forgiven them. And you don't love them. Not in a biblical gospel sense. This is what pure love is. Then he says love from a pure conscience. Now, this one might get, get you a little bit because we often think of conscience. The Greek word there is agathos, which is good. It's that which is perfect. It produces pleasure and satisfaction, a sense of well-being. The conscience is the God-created self-judging faculty of a man or woman that either affirms or accuses them. And you can read about it in Romans chapter 2. But what you might not realize is that it was different in the first century. So when Paul says good conscience, in the Ephesian culture, conscience dealt with a person's conduct within a chosen group. A good conscience meant living according to the standards and practices which the group deemed proper and acceptable. It meant living without shame among one's peers or companions. Now, think about that. Think about the kind of love where our conscience is clear with each other. You see, a pure heart is, I'm good with God. I've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. I understand who I am in front of Christ and what Christ has done with me. But a good conscience is, I coexist in community with another group of people who also love God and we hold each other accountable and we we walk through life together and we confront each other and the confrontation is not I'm going to tell you off or I'm going to one-up you or I'm going to show you or condescend to you no the kind of confrontation that Paul is talking about is where you go to someone who's doing something wrong or who is breaking a relationship who is running away from God or church and you're saying I am so desperate for you I so long for you what you're doing is going to hurt you what you're doing is going to hurt others what you're doing is going to hurt yourself and I can't bear it I don't want want to lose you i don't want us not to be in relationship so i will risk everything and tell you i love you but you're doing this is wrong when was the last time you did that with anybody when was the last time it was done to you if i had the time i wish i could tell you my story and testimony of my best friend outside of my wife and the reason we're best friends is because he dared to confront me and show me my junk and walk through life with me. He had a clear conscience. Then real love has a sincere faith. And that means a sincere faith is a faith without any pretense. It's not a hypocritical faith. A sincere faith, that means the way you live is in in the relationship to the faith you claim to have with your mouth. In other words, what you say and what you do equals. 
Faith is sincere only when it is not mere talk, but is genuine trust and confidence in God. The sincerity of your faith is not found in how passionate you are about it, but in the object of it. Is your faith in Christ? Because if your faith is in me, you're messed up. If your faith is in Calvary Baptist Church, you're messed up. If your faith is in your spouse or your kids or the heritage of your family or a version of the Bible or a form of worship, whatever you define, it's messed up. If your faith is not in Jesus Christ and His Word, it's not a sincere faith. It's a flawed faith. And then finally, there's a loving charge to explain, and I've already run out of time where Paul talks about, again, in verse 7 or 6, he says, certain persons, now notice the sequence, by swerving from these, swerving from these from what? A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, when you get away from the truth of the gospel, they've wandered away something. What did they wander away into in verse 6? Vain discussions, where they spend hours talking about the Bible, and yet their life doesn't change. Their life doesn't change. And notice verse 7. I love this. He says, desiring to be teachers of the law. Now, you have to understand in in Paul's day telling this, to be a teacher of the law. This is coming from Paul, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. This guy had memorized the first five books of the Old Testament by the time he was 12 for memory. One of the ways you passed your bar mitzvah as a Jewish boy in the first century was you had to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy for memory in Hebrew. And say it and recite it. This guy, remember in Philippians chapter 3, he says, as I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as relating to the law, blameless. And he goes, these guys want to be teachers of the law. And I love this because I think this is Paul being sarcastic. Without understanding either what they are saying, in other words, they want to be teachers and they haven't got a clue what they're talking about. And all of you that are in business or those of you in academia and those of you that deal with things even in health and the health services, you've all met someone like that. Someone who comes in or you've had students that you're teaching and you know when you've gotten a snow jobbed paper. You know when somebody is acting like they know something and they haven't got a clue what they're talking about. And not only that, because he tells you how you know, because he says at the end of the verse, and they uh, are things about which they make confident assertions. They say things like with, with, with real gusto and they haven't got a clue what they're talking about. And this is how you know if you've gotten off of the gospel. And I can give you extreme cases of it. You want to have a bad afternoon? YouTube a guy named Steve Anderson who's a pastor in Arizona. This guy doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. He really doesn't. This guy has prayed for the death of Obama He's called down hellfire and damnation on everything that moves. He's burned ESV and NIV Bibles on on barbecues and videotaped it. This guy has gone to places and just, he has called down God's wrath on everything that moves. And he does so with great authority. He's memorized large portions of the Bible. And bless his heart, he's an idiot. (laughs) The other extreme is Joel Olstein. Yeah, you're going to learn that about me. I will name names. Beautiful hair, wonderful white veneered smile, $1,000 Armani suit. And Jesus loves you and he wants everybody to be rich. And he says things with great confidence and hasn't got a clue what he's talking about. 
because he's not presenting the gospel. He's not presenting the gospel. See, it's not with a pure heart and with a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so as we leave here this morning, I just want to ask you again, Calvary Baptist, how much do you love Jesus and his gospel? How much has the gospel changed you and satisfied you and you cannot get enough of it? And so if you would say, oh, Pastor Steve, you, if you only knew how much the gospel has changed me, all right, then what needs to be reprioritized in your life? If the gospel is everything to you, how does your life need to be reprioritized? What area of your life is Jesus by his word and spirit charging you right now that you need to let go of? Can I ask the parents, are you worshiping your kids instead of parenting them? What needs to be rediscovered in your life? Who here needs to be revived or renewed? And I hope you know the difference between revival and renewal. I get tired of this too when people say, I'm praying for revival in the church. And I hope you understand what you mean. Because revival means when God's Spirit comes to church and shows by His mercy and grace people that are in church who think they're saved that they're not. That's what revival is. Renewal is when God by His mercy and grace comes to church by His Spirit and shows people who are saved that you're not acting like you're saved. You're not believing like you're saved. And I want you to understand this and please Please understand that this is not a sermon against doctrine. This is a sermon very much in favor of doctrine. Because I will tell you, get a group of people together who will be about the gospel, who will preach Jesus Christ daily to themselves, who will read God's word and study God's word and really pray to God and will trust him with what they read and study and will wait upon him with what they pray and will follow him as he directs and leads and you will have a people who will be so in love with Jesus that they will change the world. And that can happen right here. You see, you cannot get to know God personally and then live just any way at all. To know Jesus is to be changed by Him. To know Him is to be amazed by Him. To know Him is to be controlled by Him. And that's why I end with this quote. A virtuous man may be ignorant, but ignorance is not a virtue. It would be a strange God who would be loved better by being known less. Love of God is not the same thing as knowledge of God. Love of God is immeasurably more important than knowledge of God. But if a man loves God knowing a little about him, he should love God more from knowing more about him. For every new thing known about God is a new reason for loving him. And so, Calvary Baptist Church, is there anyone here that needs to be revived? You've been coming to church, singing in church, reading Bible in church, attending church, and not a Christian. And that's as asinine as me in the beautiful house that you guys provide for me, standing in a garage every day, and because I stand in the garage, say, I'm a car. I'm not a car because I stand in a garage. And you're not a Christian because you're inside of a church. You're a Christian when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ where you own what you are and you embrace who Christ is. And you see, everything that we have is found in Christ. And that's why it says, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, 
All I have is Christ. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, do you need to be renewed? Have your priorities rearranged? Let go of some stuff? Get back to some stuff? Shed the religion and the legalism and the pharisaicalism and just embrace Him? What's God speaking to you by His Spirit? Will we love each other enough to be honest with each other and to confront each other and to have prayer with each other and to have those uncomfortable, awkward silences and discussions that lead to relationships that are transforming? And this world will go, I don't get it, but I'm fascinated by it. My favorite story is, I'm going to ask the music team to come and we're going to sing All I Have is Christ, is George Whitfield. God used Whitfield both in England and America for the Great Awakening. They said that he had such a powerful voice he could preach to 20,000 people without a sound system. Times that he preached, they said at one point he preached and he preached so hard and the Holy Spirit visited so much that 8,000 people fainted under conviction. One of his neighbors was an avid atheist. And one Sunday morning, his atheist friend was leaving and the other neighbor saw him leaving and he said, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to hear Whitfield preach. And his buddy said, but you're an atheist. You don't believe in God. And he said, I know, but Whitfield does, and it fascinates me. If we will start acting like the church, the city of St. John's may not get us or understand us, but they will be fascinated by a group of people who don't just sing the song we're about to sing, but who believe it and live life by it. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Let's stand.